From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. If you go back to our very first episode of By All Means, and I hope you will, you'll hear the founding story of Caribou Coffee. It leaves off with John Puckett and his wife Kim selling their share of the business, which started out with one coffee house in Edina, Minnesota, and grew into a national chain that is now the second largest in the country. The company is owned today by Luxembourg-based JAB Holdings, but headquarters is still in Minnesota. It's been through a few different presidents and CEOs, but when Twin Cities Business published an online story in January of 2019 about Caribou's new CEO, John Butcher, the story quickly skyrocketed to our most clicked, most read, most shared. Now, I know Minnesotans feel a sense of pride and ownership for Caribou, but that amount of interest for what amounted to a job promotion story seemed a little crazy. So I started reading the comments and realized the excitement had as much to do with the person as it did the company. John Butcher, who spent most of his career at Target, is a highly regarded leader with a keen ability to connect with his team and his customers. I've been lucky enough to share a crafted cold press or two with him in recent months, and each time I come away inspired and impressed. I know you're going to feel the same. We were so smart to schedule you for afternoon. Before you got here, John, I was saying, gosh, I wonder if he'll bring coffee. And you did! <laughs> I go, I travel with, with cold presses and crafted presses wherever I go. Really? Is that what we're drinking today? Is this a crafted this press? This is crafted press with pumpkin. We had to go pumpkin. I mean, we had to go pumpkin. I got, I was pelted with it's sleep fall. when I got out of my car, so <laughs> right. it's coming. It's time to warm up. How do you feel about the pumpkin craziness? Well, when pumpkin starts leaching its way into breakfast cereal, I think we've gone too far. But mm -hmm. inside of a coffee, and it's natural pumpkin that tastes like legitimate ingredient, mm -hmm. I love it. If it's too synthetic, I'm out. I will say, and and it is not just because you were kind enough to bring this beverage. It is really good, and I don't ever order pumpkin because sometimes it tastes too kind of chemically, or yeah. it has an aftertaste. That's this part is of really the whole good. caribou with uh, with real ingredients. They they do just taste better, <laughs> which means then you can go and be a little bit more adventurous. Yes, and to think you didn't know any of this stuff a couple of years ago. No, there's so much I didn't know. <laughs> Well, now I know it all. <laughs> well, let's go all the way back. Paint a picture for us, because I I don't know this to be true, but I just have this image that you were like uh, a high school athlete, all-star, most popular guy, homecoming king. Am uh, I right? That is what I would love to pro portray. <laughs> I, I met my wife in high school. Julie and I were high school sweethearts. Uh, in she, Indianapolis. In Indianapolis. She had no interest in me. Uh, I thought that Julie was her sister that I was uh, hitting on after a summer break, and it was Julie. And it was just Does God's way of connecting me to <laughs> the person I was supposed to be with. Does she have a twin? She oh. has uh, an, a sister who's a year older okay. and one that's a year younger. And good luck when they were teenagers trying to decipher the, the, the difference between the three of them. Well, that could have been the reason why she wasn't that interested. If you couldn't even <laughs> there were, there were a lot of reasons she wasn't that interested. I was not popular. I was not a jock. I, I did play football, but we met in choir class. Okay. Uh, so I was more uh, the jazz singer than the all-star athlete. What did you want to be when you grew up? A race car driver. Of course. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. If I were two feet shorter and 100 pounds lighter, that would have been my dream job. Wow. I love, to, I love cars. I love to go fast. I love to win. Uh, but that was definitely not meant to be. Okay, so you decided on business school? <laughs> I decided on business school, something I knew I could actually do. <laughs> okay. Did you have vision? I mean, if I had talked to you when you were in college, would you have said, I want to run a big company one day? Or, I mean, what, what, did, you, what did you like about business? I, I actually liked psychology, uh, and I liked the idea of being a part of a team. So I liked understanding why people did things, 
and then finding a way to do something with that information. And I had no clue what I wanted to really be. I mm-hmm. just knew I liked those components of of school. And so finding a way to uh, to take a psychology or sociology interest and monetize it uh, was kind of the magic for me. So I worked at General Motors after school for a little bit. Is that uh, that race car part of you? Maybe. Like... You know, maybe subconsciously. I was yeah. in a really boring area, though, for, for transmissions. So, mm. but, but at the time, I thought I hit the jackpot. I was 20. I had a company car already. And eight weeks of vacation is what they gave people when they Whoa. started. Four weeks of paid anytime vacation and four weeks that you got for plant shutdowns in July and Christmas. So I thought, I've made it. Mm-hmm. And then Julie said, do you love what you do? And I said, no, not really. But I hadn't even contemplated going into, quote, the real world because I loved it. I was looking at the time. I was motivated by just finding a job, making money, you know, getting benefits. And uh, after she gave me that prompt, uh, we prayed about it. And I decided to call Target back, who had pursued me when I was in business school. And I didn't even meet him with, uh, for an interview Hmm. Uh, but I called Target and Procter and Gamble, the two that I was most interested in, and said maybe I should at least talk. But why did you think that that was going to be such a different experience than the job you were in? I I thought that they were closer to the consumer. Okay, and that was what was uh, was appealing to me. Mm-hmm. And when I got to Target, uh, I was put into uh, coming from General Motors. I thought, oh, I wonder where they're going to put me. Am I going to be in the automotive area or the electronics area? You didn't and get any choice. You didn't no, get to like no rank choice. your favorites. No, or? and you kind of at the time you get hired in out of business school at Target into a business analyst role where you manage inventory for a category nationally. And when they called to tell me that my category was feminine hygiene, <laughs> I thought, Wow, that is not what I would have guessed. And, <laughs> My boss said, oh, you're going to love it. And I thought, okay, um, we'll see. And uh, we affectionately referred to the category as strings and wings. And it was, uh, I had other, the the other categories I ran were uh, just as sexy, uh, antacids and laxatives and foot care. Was that like a hazing process? You'd think so. But actually, they were right. It, It provided a really solid foundation of big company, big information with you know, working with Kimberly Clark, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, uh, guest insights, consumer behaviors, where is their flexibility uh, in customer purchase behaviors and where won't there be? Mm-hmm. And I loved it. And it was instantly, a, yep, this is exactly why I went to school. I, so your I, wife was right. She, she As usual. Uh-huh. Yeah, she was right. <laughs> so you kind of rode through the ranks, rose, yeah. and did a, a whole bunch of different things at Target. I had Target. 15 jobs in 20 years. Wow. Yeah, I, my career was, was unique at Target because I, uh, I started a few different uh, teams I shut a few different businesses down, and I ran Target's only pure play online business. Uh, so it was it was interesting and different. Plus, I worked in merchandising and marketing and in operations, which usually people kind of pick a discipline and grow within the discipline. But I had a lot of wonderful mentors that pulled me and stretched me into different areas and gave me a lot of different opportunities to grow. And so overall, if you had to say, and I don't know if it's possible to sum it up, like your your biggest learning from your time at Target, which was a long time. Yeah, I think my biggest learning would be uh, learning how to learn, uh, learning how to feel comfortable with being uncomfortable, which that all sounds cliche as I'm saying it. But what I mean is when you're when you're moving into a completely new industry as quickly as as I was forced to and many people had the opportunity to do it just like I did you go from being uncomfortable wondering how you're going to add value because you don't know anything about live plants and how they're distributed to now you're up to speed and you're finally comfortable you refine a strategy you, you align resources you develop a great team you start to deliver results and they say hey that was great now you're going to go sell books. And you go, what? I don't know anything about the book industry. I don't know if I can do this. And then you say, okay, I can do it. You know, that old um, Arthur Ashe quote always went through my head. You know, uh, Start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. And that mentality 
is something that you have to get really comfortable with when you're in this constant time of disruption with your career. At the same time, you're in retail, which is volatile, uh, changes constantly, and what you think you knew yesterday as truth is, has now been disrupted by something that you didn't foresee. Right. So you have this convergence of fast-paced industry with a lot of personal and professional disruption, and you have to get used to knowing how to thrive in right. each of those situations. And I guess just a general takeaway from that is to be open to anything, to yeah, not say, go in with yes. such a specific idea. Yeah, say, say yes. Yeah, it was... I was so blessed to have phenomenal mentors that um, taught me to run towards that discomfort because it's just not human nature. You want to be comfortable. We like to be experts. We like to be known. We like to you know, be in, the, in a space where we're in control. And the more you stay away from those feelings, the, the more you grow. Uh, and I definitely look back at my 15 jobs in, the, in those 20 years, and I would subscribe to that theory. Yeah, I guess. Um, you weren't looking to leave Target. No. You, th- you thought you were going to be there? For, you thought you were going to be a lifer? I did. I, I mean, I had already invested 20 years, and I loved, uh, still do love the brand. And, and when you work somewhere that long, you develop real close relationships with people. And sure. Especially when I think about what's important to me as a person and as a leader those authentic connections are are really important, in fact, crucial to how I like to work. And so I was a little bit, uh, I never really even contemplated leaving. So what happened? My phone rang and it was Caribou. And it was a a recruiter out of Atlanta. And, uh, and, and when you've worked at Target at a certain, in a certain level, your phone rings a lot, and so everyone was used to it. But and would you always take those calls? No, I mean, I, I'd say uh, I bet I took one out of a thousand. And th- this particular one piqued my interest because I've been a fan of the Caribou brand for 20 years. It was a local company. Uh, I knew I didn't want to leave the Twin Cities and never really would. And and what they said was, Caribou's a great brand who needs some new uh, new thinking. And we're looking for a new president of the company at the time, and uh, you'd be a total long shot. They said, "They said, look, we've heard about you or whatever. I mean, they, they, a friend of a friend uh, mentioned my name, and they said, look, they always ask us to throw in a wild card candidate, <laughs> and you would be the wild card because you don't have any coffee experience. You don't have any restaurant experience. And I think that's Ultimately, what made me feel comfortable saying I would I would talk to him because mm-hmm. I didn't have a resume. I wasn't on LinkedIn. I hadn't interviewed for 20 years. I mean, you had to interview to get big jobs at Target, but I've never interviewed outside of the company where I had right. no personal or brand equity with, with someone. Mm-hmm. So I came home and I told Julie, Caribou called, and she said, well, I hope you called back. And I said, I, I answered. <laughs> <laughs> So as time went on and, and uh, I became less of a wild card and, and more of a potential uh, candidate, uh, once I was a, a finalist, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be so disappointed if I don't get this. Because the more I learned about the ownership company, the history, uh, the Puckett's story, I just wanted to be a part of it. What, what, what was it that spoke to you? I mean, were you a major coffee drinker? Were you a... Uh, it wasn't that. I think it's the, the quintessential component that caribou plays in our community uh, and then the role that coffee plays uh, for people as well. I, any, any business that can strike an emotional chord is interesting to me and kind of gets back to what I was interested in back in school. Why do people do what they do? Uh, how can you be a part of making people's days and lives a little bit better? And I think Caribou is uniquely positioned uh, to play that role. So when you first came on as president and you were in that role for... What, About like a, a year and a half. Okay. Yep. And then added CEO to that title. Um, did Did you see that there were problems? Did you think, boy, we need to change things up? Or was it more like don't rock the boat. This is going well. I think we uh, it wasn't going well. And the reason that, that Caribou wasn't reaching their potential uh, then is because we kind of took our eye off the ball of who we were as a brand and in pursuit of th- acquisition uh, of other companies and other brands. We had a, uh, a strategy at the time that was about buying uh, bagel companies and growing our food platform uh, by by adding fresh 
food that could match the quality of our fresh uh, and handcrafted beverages, uh, all based on guest insights that said, hey, we love your 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 coffee and your mochas. Uh, it's it's the best, but you need to do better in food. And um, so the and idea so- was, let's go buy a bunch of food companies. And that kind of distracted Caribou from being Caribou because we were, wor- we were opening up a lot of restaurants that served coffee as opposed to coffee houses that serve great food. Was part of that that, you know, that Caribou was bought by a, a big global company yes, yeah. with many brands. Can you talk just a little bit about that, about the, the ownership and all the brands? We're owned by uh, a company called JAB uh, or JAB. People refer to them either way. Uh, they're an awesome ownership team that have uh, a very long-term focus on buying companies that, that they can help reach their full potential and do good things. They, they, It's just an amazing group. It's not private equity. They're not looking to grow value and then sell it and extract value um, after three to five years. They're looking to hire leaders that can autonomously run these brands and drive long-term growth. So they also own Panera? It, yeah, in our in our uh, hold co, they own Panera, uh, Pret, uh, Espresso House, which is the number one coffee brand in uh, Scandinavia, uh, Bagel Brands, which is Einstein's, Brugger's, uh, Noah's, and Manhattan Bagels. Krispy Kreme, uh, Keurig, Dr. Pepper, Snapple. Mm. I mean, a lot of big lot brands. Of brands. And did that? Was there part of you though going into this new position and leaving the comfort and and know you know knowing Target and locally based company? I mean, obviously big company, but still you knew who owned it. Did did was there part of you that was a little nervous about going to a place where there was this like looming holding company? Uh, I, I was nervous at first, but I asked a lot of questions. They they flew me internationally. I had a chance to sit down with the partners. Um, I had a, I, I, I was pretty picky and pretty direct because I didn't want to join something. I'm a very purpose-based leader. It's important to me to, to know that uh, that the effort that I put forth every day is doing more than just making money. And so it was important that I understood what their long-term objectives were and how they saw me fitting in. And I felt really good with the answers. And more importantly, now that I've been there for two and a half years, I know I've seen their heart and I've watched the evidence of their beliefs come to life, which has been great. So I I was was more nervous for other reasons. I was nervous just to leave these relationships that I had developed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I was at that point where I was a little bit comfortable, which I knew then maybe wasn't as good based on my prior experience. So when you come in as a new guy and a real high-ranking new guy, how do you approach that? Because there have to be people who've been with Caribou for a long time are like, mm-hmm. who is he? What does he think he knows? How did you deal with, with being new and having the perspective of mm, things aren't working here as well as they should be? I did a lot of listening. I, I, I also did a little bit of kind of fake undercover boss. Uh, about three weeks before I was, uh, my, three weeks before my first day, uh, I knew I was coming, but they didn't. It hadn't been announced yet. And I visited 100 coffee shops. <laughs> and I asked a lot of questions, and I formed my own opinions about what I saw. And then I came to uh, Caribou's Support Center, which is what we call our headquarters, but we call it Support Center because we're there to support our uh, baristas and coffee shops. And I asked the same questions I asked the stores, you know, what's important around here? What needs to change? What do you love? What should never change? Uh, what would you do if you had the ability uh, to influence my decision for a day? What would you do if you were president for a minute? Mm-hmm. And I just looked for where there were consistencies and inconsistencies in those answers. And then we started to um, you know, formulate a path forward. So what were the biggest learnings? What really stood out to you from that undercover research? Biggest thing that I noticed, and this happens, if you look at why brands struggle. Uh, Brands often struggle when they change for the sake of change, when they lose sight of what the guest really wants, uh, when they stray from their own value equation. And uh, I think we were making a lot of those mistakes, but ultimately we weren't being very guest focused. Uh, We were doing things that seemed innovative and exciting, uh, but we weren't thinking about how the teams could execute it. And 
Um, and if it was really important, is, are these the things that the guest would say is most important for their experience at Caribou to be the best it can be? And so we, I'll give you an example. One of the questions I asked all the baristas and uh, people that I met with was very open-ended question. What's important around here? Mm-hmm. And everyone kind of struggled with it at first. Well, what do you mean by that? I'm like, well, what's important at Caribou? It's a big question. It, it kind of is and probably intimidating. But every time I left, I wrote down their answer in my phone and then I put it into an Excel spreadsheet. And the number one answer of what was important at that point in time was we have to make sure that we're controlling costs. Hmm. And I was shocked at that because I've been a fan of Caribou for 20 years. And, and I became a fan of the brand because of my connection with the baristas and the team and the atmosphere. And so I expected to hear team or guest or coffee, coffee. I mean, <laughs> anything, right. Yeah. But not, not waste, but at a point in time where the business was not uh, as strong as it should have been, they were focused on things like cost. Mm-hmm. And when you go, I mean, what a, what a boring thing to have to, to say is important. Mm-hmm. Why do I get out of bed in the morning? Because I want to be really cost conscious. <laughs> I mean, so we, we kind of just flip things on its head. And, uh, and we, we all knew you, you get 15, 20 people into a room and say, well, what would you do? I mean, what, what do we think the right answer is? And the right answer was to lean into uh, our awesome heritage as a brand uh, to be really, really focused on people the people that work with us and for us, the people we serve, the people in our communities. And so we we started to just behave differently. And it set us on a path of growth that can, we haven't seen for quite a while. Can you give an example? I mean, it sounds great to say you're going to think about people and be caring, but how do you actually execute that as a big company? Well, we, we dissected it uh, and kind of compartmentalized activities based on what does our team need to be best? What are they telling us right now they need to be better and more effective at their jobs? And then importantly, what is the guest saying that they want us to do better? And, and where we could find overlap... Uh, those were the ones we prioritized first. So an example would be we had general managers of our coffee shops say, I love Caribou. I love this job. Um, I would I never wa- would ever want to leave it, but I don't have enough labor hours in my scheduling and in my budget to fully staff to be mm. the best that I can be as a leader. Mm-hmm. And I go to bed at night wondering if I'm going to have enough people to to meet the needs of my business tomorrow. The guest would say, your lines became too long. I, you used to be super fast and reliable, and I could stop even if I knew I was in a pinch on my way to work. I could. I knew that I, that Carrie at this store was going to get me in and get me out because she knows my order and she cares about me, and I'm important. And so we said, okay, the guest is saying we're slow. The team's saying they don't have enough labor. We late. We added a lot of labor hours, which is counterintuitive when your business is struggling. Mm-hmm. But we did it because we knew it was right, and we knew it would pay off over the long haul. Was part of the struggle just that, I mean, the coffee landscape has changed so incredibly much in yeah. in the last decade or two, and there are so many more competitors yeah. than there were. Is that a factor? I, was that a factor? I think it was only a factor in so much as it, when you try and be something that you're not, you become overly complicated. And... We had added a lot of menu items. We looked at what uh, third and fourth wave coffee shops were doing and thinking, oh, maybe we can replicate some of that. We looked at what great restaurants were doing around great food, and we thought, well, we can add that in too. So I think in a way, uh, we're not afraid of competition. We're really proud of what we deliver. When we're at our best, uh, we win all day long. And uh, we just weren't as focused as we needed to be. So you cut out some of the food items. You started scaling back the menu. We we so we love our partnership with Einstein's. They they make great products. Uh, what we had to focus on was making sure we didn't have too many. So we did we we reduced some of the menu. We in, increased the amount of training, uh, the amount of labor. Uh, we started to refresh some of the stores. We innovated. We asked the the guests, "What do you want?" And then, and we, they said very clearly in the food, for example, "You're not meeting all of my dietary needs or preferences." Uh, we didn't have anything for gluten free. We didn't have anything vegetarian. So we started to just check each of those boxes once we had an item or a new menu item that we were really proud of. 
Um, and that has, has really helped. Um, and then we looked and we're really honest with ourselves to say, where are we falling behind? And in some cases, we were falling behind in technology. We didn't have an order ahead uh, uh, option on our app. Uh, in some cases, uh, there were menu items in the coffee space. You know, we, we are innovators in coffee. As a smaller coffee company, uh, relatively speaking to some, uh, we should be fast. We should be very agile. Uh, we should be willing to take some risks and not be perfect all the time. Uh, but we didn't have nitro. I mean, we nitro coffee, it was a big trend, and we, we were late to the game. So we leaned in on all of those things that we thought would be most important. Um, explain the, the nitro phenomenon. Why is that such a big deal? It, it changes uh, the, the feel and experience of coffee. You take a black coffee, a cold brew or cold-pressed coffee, infuse it with nitrogen, and it automatically becomes really smooth and silky, uh, like you're pouring a Guinness into a glass. You can watch the head just form and rise. Uh, and it's it's just, it is very different. I thought it was a little bit sticky at first. Yeah. Uh, it's not. It's phenomenal. It's got to be hard to stay ahead when the consumer is so educated. Don't I mean, like, yeah, right. did consumers know about things like nitro Some a decade ago? No, I don't think so. And the technology just wasn't there either. Mm-hmm. But... I think for us, it's about knowing who you are, and our roots are in uh, really, really high coffee quality. And I think one of the things we had to get over as a team was uh, what was changing the way that coffee was consumed and feeling okay that being on trend might mean that the coffee experience evolves. We wouldn't have ever been okay 10 years ago putting caribou coffee into a can for consumption in a uh, in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we have a belief that coffee needs to be fresh. So if you go to a caribou coffee house, every bean in that coffee house that you would be served had been roasted out of our Minnesota facility within the last 28 days. That's very uncommon. I mean, mm-hmm. most coffee companies have shelf lives of up to a year. Hmm. And we wouldn't have imagined putting our coffee into a can that could be consumed six months from now. Even with only 5% degradation, someone on the coffee team would say, that's, that's not acceptable. Well, now we say technology's changed a lot. People want to consume coffee at a lot of different points throughout the day. Let's, let's not take ourselves so seriously that we're going to prevent people from enjoying our brand when they want it. So... <laughs> Things like infusing it with nitrogen, mixing it with chocolate, you know, which has been you know, part of our DNA from the beginning, infusing it in, or putting it in cans, infusing it with different flavors. You know, we've been having a lot of fun, and it's and it's been paying off. One of the things that surprised me when when we talked um, earlier for Twin Cities Business uh, about what you're doing at Caribou is how young, relatively young, your customer is, and it seems like getting. Younger, getting younger, yep. yep. Because honestly, I mean, I think of you as sort of the family brand. Is that horrible? No, I mean, I just no. We love the families. coffee houses. Yeah. <laughs> are you know they're friendly, they're inviting. They you have a lot of suburban locations. So I think of you as more that, not like this hipster, you know, whatever kind yeah. of too too cool for school brand. But but yet your customers are getting younger. Why is that? We we have been listening to what younger customers want, and we're and we're adapting. So if you look at our guest, we are predominantly female uh, or more female than male. And the guest that we've attracted in the last 18 months is about 10 years younger than our typical guest. It's a big difference. And part of that is uh, we've been innovating in the cold coffee space a lot. Uh, younger people, uh, my kids, are drink, they only drink cold coffee. So when I walk into a coffee shop, I, I look at straws versus lids. Yeah. Thanks for giving me another complex, by the way, because I didn't realize I was over the hill by choosing. I like warm beverages. I do too. We do. I like it. We, we drink it differently throughout the day. Yet another sign that I'm old. Oh, so look, young people, why do you think you're young not people, alone? Why do young people prefer cold? I think it's, uh, it, it's flexible uh, to be mixed differently. Uh, you can mix it with different types of flavors and take it on the go. Uh, don't have to worry about it getting uh cold because uh-huh. it starts out that way. <laughs> so right. if you look at the way that they're consuming it, you know, coffee with bubbles, coffee with different flavors, younger people are way more adventurous. 
and uh, they're willing to push the boundaries a little bit more. Will they settle into like a, a warm latte or espresso when they get older? Or do you think this is like a no. seismic shift in the industry? I think it's a shift. I think I mean, we still sell a ton of lattes and mochas hot, mm-hmm. uh, s- still among our top items for sure. Uh, but there's a marked difference in how 25, like, so if you look at the 16 to 25 year old age band, cold coffee consumption is where it's at. And I don't see them at some point flipping a switch and saying, you know what, I'm going to start to drink hot now. Mm-hmm. Just not what they do. They hmm. want to take it, they want it to be portable. They want it to taste great. They want it to be a little bit more adventurous. They want to drink it in the morning, noon, and the afternoon. Right. So it's different. I mean, it's not just a hot drip coffee market anymore. A lot of what you talk about, obviously, is about people and back to psychology. But at the same time, you've learned a whole lot about coffee. I have. <laughs> How did? <laughs> Way more than I ever thought I could. I've only been. I've only learned because I have a really amazing team. Well, can you talk about that? The the secret tasting lab and, oh and how you educated yourself and your your brief stint as a barista. I I, I am so one one of the the magic of Caribou is our people. There's no doubt about it. And if you go back, uh, my first few weeks on the job. They're walking me through this massive world-class roastery in uh, Brooklyn Center that's been there since the early 2000s. The same group of people have been roasting our coffee, for the most part, uh, since the Puckets hired them. I mean, we Hmm. have a very, very experienced and loyal uh, coffee team. And quality control is extremely important. Uh, Direct relationships with farmers. The how is really important at Caribou. And so as I'm Getting educated, my jaw is just dropping because you can start to now taste why, like the fruits of this labor uh, from this team. And Carrie's always been able to claim that they buy the or that we buy the top one percent of the world's coffee beans. And when you hear why they made all those choices and how they take so much care into the roasting, it was just it blew me away. I'm I'm amazed. Did they? Did the the officials, the the people who make those decisions, who are in that tasting? Can you tell about the tasting lab a little bit? Yeah. So I there's a, to... there's a lab that we call it's a it's a cupping lab, and every day at ten o'clock they uh, brew samples of inbound coffee from around the world to decide if they want to let that container actually be delivered to Caribou. So. We taste it when it's in origin. So if we're in, if we're buying something from Guatemala or uh, you know Costa Rica or whatever it might be, we taste it in origin. Then we taste it when it's arrived at port. And if we green light that shipment, it arrives. We roast a sample. We taste it again. Then we roast it, and they taste it again. So every uh, batch has been roasted and cupped four different times, and then it's blindly tested by our roasting team. And these guys are, they're unbelievable. First of all, there's a process. You slurp coffee when you're tasting it. Yes. And it Can, sounds like a rocket ship. Are you able to recreate that? Because it is the most no jarring way. thing. When you walk in there and you hear them, and you're like, what is going on? Yeah, it's intimidating. They have these like really loud, amazing sounding slurps. Like you're taking a soup spoon and you're slurping the coffee like your mom told you never to do. Never to do, right. And that's what you have to do because it aerates the coffee and it and it exaggerates the flavors of the coffee as they as they move around your tongue and your mouth. And you know, I choke 90% of the time <laughs> that I slurp and I've really been trying to work on it because it's it's embarrassing. Yeah, my slurp is really weak and <laughs> anemic, and these guys you know, slurp. You need a strong slurp. I do. I need, I'm going to work on it. It's going to be one of my little <laughs> That wasn't on the, uh, the job application. No, thank, Must have thank strong goodness. slurp. Yeah, my, <laughs> but were those guys welcoming to you? When you came in, a total outsider, yeah. not only new to the company, but new to the coffee business, were they welcoming? Did I they want to teach you? They were polite. <laughs> <laughs> they were worried. Uh, they put on a brave face. They were excellent teachers. They were open-minded, but I think rightfully so. They were really worried about uh, you know a company, especially a big guy company, or a big sorry a big company you know, person coming to a smaller private organization where most leaders have been appointed through uh, internal promotions. And sure, I'm a total outsider, so I I didn't blame anyone for a minute. Uh, for being concerned about would this guy understand our brand? Would he appreciate our heritage? 
Is he going to scrap the things that we love about this company that are so important to our success? Right. Uh, but I, 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 I'm hoping that now they would say we shouldn't have been worried. <laughs> I, th- I think yeah, that's but, probably a fair assessment. You you spent a lot of time in stores. I, I mean, did. Not just the undercover part, but once they knew yes, who you yes. were, you went and worked behind the counter. How much of an impact do you think that had on the team and on your understanding of the business? Well, I don't know how much of an impact it had on them other than I got in their way a lot. <laughs> um, I... <laughs> It's complicated to be a, a, an effective barista, and you know I was having a lot of fun, and I was engaging with the guests, but I'm pretty sure I was just getting in people's ways. And again, they were our, our own team was polite to me, yeah. But I learned a lot. I mean, it's you don't know what you don't know until you ask, and and you really start to listen and prioritize the needs of the team. But the other thing it did for me was it. It showed how different we have. We've done a lot of guest insight work. We've done. You can go and research yourself to death. Um, I'm a big believer in needing and using data to make decisions, but only to a certain point. And the right answers are usually found on your team. Uh, they just need to be asked. They need to be empowered. And when you go out to a coffee shop and you ask someone who's worked there for ten years, what could we do to make this place better? They have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, then the person that they're serving does. You say to the guest, what could we do to be even better for you? Yeah, this is not rocket science, right? I mean, we're in a service industry where people matter. Real, authentic interactions with people drive business. And I loved working in the coffee shops. Uh, One one example uh, or moment that I remember being really profound for me it was working at a drive-through in Egan and it was a Friday and the person that I was disrupting <laughs> or taking their order uh, bought the order for not in the cool startup kind yeah of way. no just, yeah just, not just... not in a cool way just in the annoying like get me to work you're uh, yeah. <laughs> being too slow way uh, she she said I want to go ahead and buy the uh, get the order for the car behind me and I thought well that's amazing I don't know how to do that help and that persisted for 29 cars. So 29 cars in a row, the person bought the order behind them. And mm-hmm. watching the looks on each, both the giver and the receiver of that on their faces and the impact it had on their morning was was really, really cool. And it, it was something that's really stayed with me and led to the recreation of our purpose statement at Caribou that we launched earlier this year. But... Uh, we are uniquely positioned as a morning business. The majority of our business is done before 10 o'clock in the morning. But we're uniquely positioned to be the first person that you see outside of your own friends and family in the morning and have a positive impact on that person for the entire day. Mm-hmm. And so, that, that was a great reminder that day. Um, what did you say to that 30th car? I was that- so <laughs> bummed. I'll never forget him. He was driving a brand new Lexus. I knew money wasn't a problem for him, and uh, he fumbled around a little bit. He's, if he's listening to this podcast, I hope you're. I hope you're embarrassed. But he's like, "Oh, I can't find my my money," and and he said, "Oh, you know, I just got to go." And oh man, I was so bummed. <laughs> Well, 29 is a pretty 29 good was a good record, but I wanted to see how far we could keep that baby going. So, so you did um, rethink your, your do you call it your purpose statement or your mission statement? Yeah, for purpose the... statement. Just okay. uh, to answer that question that we were asking the baristas a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. why is Caribou Coffee a thing? Why are we a company? Why do we all want to wake up in the morning? What, what is our purpose and our reason for being? Mm-hmm. And and what did you come up with? What's the new statement? We uh, Our purpose statement is to create day-making experiences that spark a chain reaction of good. Hmm. And to just break it down a little bit, that day-making experience came from, that. that's, if you go and talk to, you probably heard you know, John Puckett uh, talk about their original manifesto when they were thinking about Caribou, which is, we're sick of crappy, impersonal service, and we know we can do it better. Mm-hmm. So it's always been about service. And we thought, kind of imagined ourselves uh, being around, being a fly on a wall for someone's dinner conversation with their family and they're recapping their day. Like, what would it take if the best part of their day started off at Caribou? And we thought how wonderful it is when you're treated properly and you're known and 
uh, you get in, you get out, you get your favorite drink, right. and you just made someone's day. And then that leads to this second part, which is creating a, a, a spark, like sparking a chain reaction uh, of good. And you think about turning a frown upside down in the morning, and hopefully someone can leave with a little bit more grace after they've been treated well and treat the next person uh, with a different attitude. How do you teach that, though? You you can't possibly know every single person working behind the counter of every single caribou around the world. How do you how do you instill that in your employees? I think it's who we hire. It's 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 looking. We can teach uh, this this job to a lot of different people. We need people that are others focused and. That's yeah. That's it. People that have a, a service mindset that care about other people more than they care about themselves. People that want the team to win more than they're interested in uh, getting ahead themselves. And so it's looking for the right types of uh, of people to work for the for the brand. Can you uh, pat yourself on the back for just a minute and like give us some of the some of the benchmarks of of how you have turned things around in the last couple of years? Well, we look for uh, being very guest uh, guest and team focused. We care and look at those uh, factors uh, more than than most. And we've been tracking guest uh, satisfaction for about twenty five years, and we're at an all time high. We're the number one. Uh, brand in all of the coffee and restaurant space for guest satisfaction now for the last five quarters. And we've, we had never been number one until 2018, and we haven't relinquished the number one customer satisfaction spot now since we became number one last summer. So that's we're, we're proud of that, but that stems from leaning into team and culture and doing good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at how our team is feeling, we're at a at a multi-year, almost a 12-year low for team member turnover. Um, our our team members want to come to Caribou. They stay with the company, and it's the part that I'm probably most proud of because uh, we we have some really special people in this brand. Uh, I I love that. So our business is doing really well as a result of happy guests and happy team. We've just had really really strong results. And what about sales? I mean, at the end of the day, you got to sell coffee. Well, uh, sales are way up, so <laughs> we'll take it. There, uh, we've had some of our uh, our best couple of quarters that we've had in many, many years. So it's we're we're proud of it. But it all it all starts with the people. So you really attribute it more to service and atmosphere than you do to the the coffee and the menu itself. I think it's uh, I, I think nothing happens without a committed, focused team. But there are a variety of things between launching the right new products, getting rid of the things that didn't matter so our operators could, could be more effective at their jobs, and then staying really focused on what the customer was telling us they wanted, which was a more frictionless, uh, faster, easier experience. So uh, adding order ahead, for example, to our loyalty program. Uh, was really important. Uh, it's been very successful. It's been driving our business because, I mean, again, not rocket science. They said they wanted it, we gave it to them, and it's working. So mm-hmm. I think it's been a, a convergence of factors from uh, innovation to focus to better execution and then uh, and then great, great people. So what's on your to-do list now? You've done it all. No, more of all that. Are you kidding me? We have so much more to do. <laughs> we have... We just met actually all week with our district managers. Uh, we have 26 district managers that run uh, all of these coffee shops, uh, the hundreds of stores, and uh, that's what we're talking about. We're we're talking about raising the bar because we know that we're just hitting our stride and we're capable of so much more. All right. Well, um, let's leave with one piece of advice that you would give people about. Leadership. You you seem to really have it nailed. It doesn't matter what the product is. It's it's the human connection. What can you tell people whether they're starting their own venture or working for a company? How do you become a good leader? I think uh, for me, it's been knowing when to lead and then knowing when to follow. You know, when when do you need to be the person to step up, uh, take a bullet for the team? Uh, provide a little nudge in the right direction. Uh, when do you just have to make the call and live with the consequences? And then when do you take a back seat and take your hands off the steering wheel and 
uh, know that your team has got this and focus time and energy and mind share on getting the right people uh, onto the team. Uh, mm-hmm. I have one of the best leadership teams I've ever had, and uh, it allows me to empower them and step back and watch what they do with amazement. And uh, and that's really, I think, wh- why I've been uh, able to, to contribute. Right. Well, congratulations on all the success. It's it's a very great experience going to your new design stores, and now your cabins are oh, coming. I can't wait. It, yeah, first cabin opens November 15th, so we are in Jordan. Yeah, so we're just a few weeks away. In, in Jordan, Minnesota. Jordan, Minnesota, then Burnsville a couple weeks later. We have five opening by uh, Christmas. And these are m- smaller. Yeah, they're about 500 square feet. Um, drive through or walk up window only. Uh, they're going to be launching our new beverage platform, which is caffeinated juices and caffeinated waters. Oh, uh, we're, we call it. Uh, it's boosted. Get it? B O U. Boosted. I got it. Yeah, and uh, we take the caffeine from coffee and extract it with no flavor, and then we put that into flavored waters and and juices. Hmm. So that if you don't love the taste of coffee, you can still get the function of coffee and have a lot of fun while you're drinking it. So we're launching that exclusively at cabins to begin with in this market, and then it'll you know probably come to other coffee shops later. How about that? Well, thank you for updating my order. I'm now a crafted press drinker because of you. I think of you every time I order it. Oh, thank you. Now maybe I'll add the pumpkin latte to the the repertoire as well. John Butcher, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Allie. Appreciate it. Stick around. Next, we're going to go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Unlike a lot of the stories you've heard here on By All Means about founders with a really singular focus and a, and a plan of something they wanted to do, John Butcher has taken a very different approach to his career in business. He's been up for anything, 15 jobs in 20 years at Target. He went to Caribou not really knowing much about the beverage space or coffee other than he liked to drink it. How do you do that? How do you, uh, how are you successful in lots of different things? And what can we all take away from that, whether you're an entrepreneur or someone who's trying to lead a new venture? Well, let's ask Gino Giovanelli. He's a marketing professor here at the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business. Gino, you know a thing or two about Caribou. Yeah, that's correct. I I was a consultant there for about 10 years doing digital marketing. Before John Butcher Before, came I in. came out as he was coming in. Okay. So yeah, 10 years. I've seen a lot. I love that brand, still love that brand. Uh, just a, just a, a special place. Does it surprise you the the way that John came in as an outsider and what he's been able to do in a short time? It, it was kind of surprising because I think there's such a culture there that that, that, that it kind of comes from within, mm-hmm. uh, and that outsiders uh, maybe don't understand the coffee business so well. And I think John's perspective was was good for two reasons. One, I mean, as you said earlier, 15 jobs in 20 years. Uh, this guy has seen it all. Maybe not in coffee, mm-hmm. but imagine what he's learned in those jobs. Right. And then you couple that with the fact that he doesn't know anything about coffee, which means if he, when he comes in, as he mentioned, he talked to like a hundred different people about the business to understand the business. It almost forces you to not immediately go, I know what we need to do because mm-hmm. I did it over here and here's how it's going to be. Harder to do that when you're within a company. Is it possible, though, do you think, to, to take the lessons from the way John approached it and, and do that even if you're not starting? It I, I think it's possible if it's like a lot of people things and culture kinds of things. But when it comes down to an industry, I think you got to listen a little bit. Uh, and what I loved about it is how he said, I listened, I asked questions, I asked lots of questions. And again, if you don't have a a background in that industry, you, the temptation is to just come running in and just be the fixer. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't, I don't, I never saw him as the fixer. I saw him as, as a person with lots of experience. And where, what I loved was he came in and he just listened. I, my first boss at a college, I took a sales job and he went on a sales call with me and I just felt like I needed to, uh, you know, impress my boss. So I was talking a lot with the customer and he, at the end he goes, you know what? You have two ears, one mouth, use them proportionately. Ooh. And 
cool. I was just like, whoa. And I and I, and I, I read a lot when I listened to the, or thought a lot about the podcast when I listened to it with, with John. And I was like, you know, he listened. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he was able to get perspective and then leverage what he knows mm-hmm. and take it forward. So I, w- I just I thought that was just a great way to do it. So learnable skills. Could we all do what John did or does it take a, a, a special mix of, of talents and ability to do that? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Because I, I mean, the things he was talking about with the cupping lab and all those kinds of I went through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it does take a little bit of sleeping to kind of understand that that business. But, yeah, I think anybody who's willing to learn it can learn it. And again, it's just that notion of, of just hold back. Don't, don't immediately fix. I mean, I've seen a lot of CEOs come, CEOs come in to a company and they do the, what's called the listening tour. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they spend six months just asking customers, yep. what do you need us to do differently? Ask employees, what do we need to do differently? I love how he said, the answers come from typically from our people right. and our customers. But you have to be willing to ask and not immediately try to fix. Remember, he said that the business wasn't in a good shape when he came in. Can you imagine the temptation to immediately put things into place to change that course of of of, of, of path? And he didn't. Mm-hmm. I think he just listened, and he and he just and then and then leverage what he knew. Right. Yeah. Two ears, one mouth. I like that. Two ears and one mouth. I know. I, I just I listened to that and I was like, you could oh, that is so so good. Yeah. And like and I just needed to be hit over the head with it. Right. Great advice. Thank you, Gino. And yeah. thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts and take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps the show. I'm Allison Kaplan on behalf of Twin Cities Business. Thanks for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Benita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Bye.